0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate, starting at just $19.99, our great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code CULTURE and double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use the code CULTURE. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com forward slash culture. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door visit harrys.com for five dollars off your first purchase with a promo code culture
1: the following podcast contains explicit language mm-hmm. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Baby, it's showbiz inside edition. It's Wednesday, December 9th, 2015. On today's show, Macbeth is arguably the oddest play by Shakespeare. It's now a new movie directed by Justin Kurtzell and starring Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. And then A Very Murray Christmas is an homage to the old holiday-themed variety specials of yore. It stars Bill Murray and is directed by Sofia Coppola. And finally, there once was a girl we talked to Slate's own, Katie Waldman about her beautiful essay on anorexia. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
2: Hi, Steve. I, I have a quibble. I have a quibble and a Slate Plus tease here. Can I quibble with you? A quibble and a tease. So your title for the show violates, like, my great inviolable rule, which is the rule of two. You mean my funny and apt
1: title to the show? Is that the one?
2: What was it? It was so catchy. Baby, it's showbiz inside?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Okay. Breaks the rule of two. Can't do it. Got to redo that. The rule of two stipulates that in any headline where you're altering or punning on some going phrase, you cannot alter more than one part of that phrase. So you could do... Maybe it's showbiz outside or baby, it's cold inside, which I actually think might be apt for Sofia Coppola's oeuvre generally. Um, but to do baby, it's showbiz inside breaks the rule of two. Can't make an exception. Don't like it.
1: Uh, perhaps you're familiar with, I think it's rule number six of Orwell's in politics in the English language. It states break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous.
2: Okay, but I think that your joke is not good enough to warrant breaking the rule.
1: (laughs) And of course, uh, joining us is our film critic Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana, um, break the tie, please.
0: On, on, baby, it's cold inside, or it's baby, it's snow outside. (laughs) We (laughs) made
2: two choices. (laughs) Baby, it's showbiz inside.
1: Have you been smoking up the (laughs) nutmeg again? Can you pay attention, please? Baby, it's showbiz inside.
0: That's that does not evoke anything to me except just a, a row of <laughs> syllables. I think I have to stick
2: with the Julia two rule. Yes, victory! Oh, God, Dollars with- are being exchanged under the table here <laughs> yeah, in New York.
1: siding with the boss. What a surprise! Huh. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we dig into the show? Do we have other business?
2: Um, wait, I forgot my tease. Uh, for Slate Plus, we're going to talk about two very exciting copybook moves at the New York Times and Washington Post. The New York Times has allowed a person who prefers not to identify with any particular gender to be identified as Mix, M-X, period. And the Washington Post is now allowing, begrudgingly, the use of the singular They a subject about which everyone has their own opinion. So we will be joined by Brian Ladder to discuss these developments on Slate Plus. All right, now we can start.
1: All right, moving on. Macbeth is perhaps Shakespeare's strangest, most freakish play. It's a violent, weird contemplation of the relationship between deed and prophecy, and perhaps more disturbingly, between husband and wife. It is the troubled, the cursed play. Of course, it's genius, it's Shakespeare, but almost always notoriously, it's a failure in execution, so much that you're supposed to never say the word in a theater. This is a true story. My daughter was, older daughter, was in her first ever play. They were talking about how you're never supposed to name the unnamable play. One of her co-stars did. The lights went out in the theater in the middle of the production. They had to finish it <laughs> in the hallway. It is the freak play, the weird play. I'm telling you, the witches, <laughs> witches govern all. Dana, uh, there's I should say now. Um, there is a new uh, filmed version of it. It stars Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard. It's directed by Justin Kurtzell. Dana, it's a movie, so I'll start with you. Um, in a I want to hear what you thought of this film very much and then I very much want to get to your terrific essay about the history of filming Shakespeare but first this 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 film what'd you think of it
0: You know I really liked it but I'm not sure to what extent I just I liked it because it let it let the Shakespeare show through After seeing this Macbeth the reason I decided to go down the rabbit hole of looking at Macbeth on film and the history of Macbeth on film is because it really just reminded me of what an incredible play Macbeth is and how how hard it is to go wrong with dramatic material that good I think between that Fassbender and Cotillard, this movie kind of can't miss. It could be argued, and we can argue it here, if it's maybe a bit too grandiose and bombastic in its presentation and its four scenes are a little too slow-mo and too frequent. But I thought when Shakespeare was being spoken in this movie, I was happy, and that, that was
2: enough for me. Oh, that's so interesting. I felt like the movie really privileged the story and the visuals over the language in a way that was interesting and striking, and, like, not classic Shakespeare adaptation maneuver. And the visuals are very, very, very gorgeous. I mean, i it felt felt like it could be a coldplay video also, but it it was it was mesmerizingly beautiful to look at. But the way they deliver the lines is like it's like all muttered through these like very you know, varied but somewhat broguish accents. Like you don't get a lot of sense of of galloping meter and you know, which is good, but it's like hard to hear, I think.
0: Yeah, I was just reading that, that some critic, I believe it was Manola Dargis, thought that Marion Cotillard was a, was a mush mouth and she didn't d- deliver her lines clearly. And then, of course, there's the question of accents and who's trying to do a brogue and who's not. Maybe we should listen to a clip and see if we can understand what they're saying.
1: His highness is not well. Sit. Worthy friends. Pray you keep seat. The fit is momentary. Upon a thought, he will again be well. If much you know, Tim, you shall
3: offend him and extend his passion, feed,
1: and regarding naught. Are you man? Hi. And a bold one, that there look on that which might appall the devil. Oh, proper stuff. Pretty. See there.
2: Hold. Look no, low, how say you?
1: This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you
3: to Duncan. Why do you make such faces?
0: So in case you don't know that scene, it's the famous banquet scene when uh, when the ghost of Banquo, who Macbeth has just had killed, shows up at this banquet, visible only to him. And he starts freaking out. And uh, what I love about this scene also is that the, the wife, Lady Macbeth, of course... Not only has to find out what's going on with Macbeth and calm him down, but has to cover for the guests and try to pretend
2: that this is part of his normal distemper. I loved the way this scene was staged, and also that clip totally proves your point, not mine, Dana. Nice, nice man. Nice, nice like, comprehensible. Bid the clip selection, but it's very different than the rest of the movie, which takes place like mostly outside on howling moors where people are like gutturally, you know, speaking through mud and blood.
1: But all right, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you know it's funny i i suppose i liked it uh as you say julia a lot of the action is outside a lot of the early action is intense and by candlelight and then when he kills duncan and becomes king they get to go indoors this huge massive castle and that contrast is quite powerful and i almost think that the opposite question is is whether shakespeare ever really works as a film i mean this is extremely cinematic And if you think about it, what Shakespeare did is he took iambic pentameter almost as a technological advance, as a way of filling English language with a kind of rhythm so that you could uh, substitute description and extended description um, for visual spectacle. And uh, this play is it's really cut down to the bone. I was going back and forth between the text of the play and the movie. It's in some ways a really daring cut and paste job. I mean, they're very well-known speeches are divided up and uh repositioned in the action. This Shakespeare is definitely in service of the film. Fuck, I don't really have a point. I mean, I guess I liked it, but not really. I don't know. <laughs> I like it.
2: The Scottish play has reduced you to uh to indecisiveness, Steve. I've never seen it before. <laughs>
1: Or let me put it a different way, then. I think I recently endorsed the, you know, quote-unquote kingdom of Shakespeare on the show, and the idea is that these plays are this magnificent universe under themselves, and then there's a second kingdom, right, which is this just the fact that they're being iterated out at any given moment all over the globe, everywhere, by such a wide variety of people. And that recently, having seen a bunch of Shakespeare almost kind of randomly, I, I just found it very moving, I think what I found moving about it is I sort of i am starting to get this feel for the preposterousness of Shakespeare and the formality of it and the verbosity of it relative to the actual point and emotion, emotional point that they're meant to deliver. And there is a relationship between the formal verbosity. I mean, of course, there's a lot of informal verbosity and, you know, kind of verbal horseplay. But so much of the action of the emotionally important plays is delivered informal modes of speech and this play famously has less of it but they cut it down even further and so all the things that i've been recently responding to in shakespeare really absent from this movie as a movie but i don't know that that's an important reaction to it
2: yeah, I mean, I, I admired the ruthlessness of the scalpel here. I mean, you see the witches and they don't they don't talk about their bubbles and boils at all. You know, it's like the... the <laughs> no ingredient list whatsoever for the, the no, no newts, newt-free, a totally newt-free Macbeth. You know, I, I admired that. I thought that was interesting. I think the movie reduces Macbeth to its essence. It doesn't seem like a misguided or ill-conceived set of cuts. But it left me realizing, A, that I'm not sure I've ever seen Macbeth performed before. I'm not sure I've ever seen a play or... Movie version of it. Um, I think I've just read it. And I was struck, at least in this version, by my own Philistinic response of frustration about. The film's core subject, which is again my Raskolnikov response of like, just don't murder people. If you just wouldn't go and murder people, you wouldn't be in this mess of trouble. <laughs> and 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 the fun- human condition, schmooman condition. Well, no, I the, the, the fundamental metaphor for ambition there, I guess, or or I guess I, it left me wondering. It left me wanting to read more critical work on what we think Macbeth is really all about because the thing I've d- don't think I quite parse when I read the play, which is probably years ago at this point, is sort of, what are we to make? Is it a spell? How crucial are the witches? Are the witches the excuse he gives himself for behaving terribly in pursuit of what he wants, and then he's just racked with guilt, so it's just a guilt play? Or how much magic is there in it? So cutting back the witches, I guess, does sort of leave it more on him and his ruthless
1: ambition. But they're, vis- they're visually very prominent in the movie. I mean, the witches are not recessive in this production. They don't, they don't say as much, but they're, you know, they're very eerily present to the action.
0: They're also linked, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but you find this out in the first moments of the movie, so it's not that big a spoiler alert, but there's there's this emphasis throughout on Lady Macbeth and Macbeth's child, who this movie posits, they had a child who died and you see that child's funeral in the opening scene of the movie with no words, right? Which I'm sure it's not the first time a, a production of Macbeth has opened like that, because there's that whole speech Lady Macbeth makes about, I have given suck and know what it is to love the babe that milks me, right? And then she says, I would bash out that baby's brains against a rock if I had sworn to something, as such. so if as you have sworn to this right to killing Duncan and nobody knows what to make of that speech because of course they have no visible child in the play they have no offspring that's the whole point of killing Banquo and his son so um so I really like that the movie started off with this image of the dead child which who also gets tied back in again with the witches Mm -hmm. the witches start to appear with that so that gives some motivation to Lady Macbeth for her madness and her anxiety that otherwise is not really there in the in the play
1: Mm. um I, to refine my point earlier, I mean, I just, I, why why are Shakespeare plays Shakespeare plays, right? I mean, people deliver long, verbally intricate, often hyper-punning speeches in which their inner existence is brought out into the open air in a way that's not meant to be naturalistic or real. And people don't talk like this. There's a formality to it. It's in iambic pentameter. And yet it happens at exactly that moment in the English Renaissance when Humanism is discovering human psychology in the intricacy of human psychology, and Macbeth of the Important Plays is the least like that. It's very driven by violence and action. And to cut it down even further, I don't know. I just it's funny. It does it arrive at some place emotionally consequential? I don't know. Did it, Julia?
2: Well, that's my question. Like, do you guys care? Why do you guys care about Macbeth and what happens to him? Why aren't you just like, I wish you had murdered? Like, just don't go murdering people. Well,
0: th- this is this is one of the complex things about Macbeth as a Shakespearean hero. The, the title of the play that Shakespeare gave it is The Tragedy of Macbeth. But the question of whether it is he is a tragic hero is kind of a, a question. If anything, he's a tragic antihero. He's never really someone who has grand ideals or ambitions. He's not a person who falls from yeah. a high place, right? He's either like a tragic of, villain. Yeah, and, and he only becomes worse as the play goes on, and he must be such a, a challenge to play for that reason, because he doesn't sort of ascend morally the way King Lear does, mm-hmm. and he doesn't, I don't know that you'd say a Hamlet ascends morally, but he ascends intellectually. I mean, he sort of... Or,
1: descend, or descends into himself or intellectually, descends, but, intellectually but, in a right, way that no one movement. ever had in Western culture before, right? I mean, it's like it is a turning point in how people understand human psychology, and you're right, I mean, there's no... There's no obvious equivalent in Macbeth,
0: and I mean just to finish that thought about Macbeth, he ends the play as as a really reduced moral figure, right? Someone who will kill children, women, anyone who gets in his way. Someone who's a bad king and is doing a bad job of
2: ruling the country. That he yeah, killed he, someone to. He does a very good mad king. I mean, the, like the, I feel like mad. Cost you mean? Yeah, just in general, I think like mad king as a trope is like fun and one that Hamilton has a lot of fun with, and people in the culture have had fun with over right. time. But there's some really good mad king, like striding around in a flapping nightshirt moments.
0: Yeah, the last act of this movie, I mean, the the question of whether it's dramatically satisfying for us that, you know, essentially everyone dies and everyone sucks and everyone's sort of morally empty at the end is one thing. But but it's certainly something that actors
2: love to play and sink their teeth Mm. into. Well, Dana, I'm curious. I mean, I liked this. I can't say – I don't think this is the movie we've seen this year that I would most heartily send people toward unless you just – are prone to liking writing FASSBENDER in all caps in your emails, as I am. But, you know, I I think this reacquainted me with both the power of the play how many amazing lines and speeches there are in it. I mean, not practically ever their word out of their mouth. You know by heart just because of how much it's infiltrated the language. But for all of its thorniness and difficulties in playing, how do you think this version compares against all the versions you went back and watched? I mean, it seems like such a fun assignment to go, fun and daunting, to go descend into, you know, countless Macbeths of yore.
0: Oh, so many. And there are so many I didn't see. I mean, I I sort of had to put blinders on and say I'm only going to talk about these four or five or else it would have really spiraled out of control. But, I mean, I would say that it's probably the, the weakest of the ones I was writing about, but I was comparing it to an Orson Welles movie, a Roman Polanski movie, what else, a, a Kurosawa movie, you know, some of the greatest filmmakers that have existed. So, you know, Justin Kurtzel is this young filmmaker out of Australia. I think this is his second or third film. you know. I, I don't think it's quite fair to rank him against Orson Welles and say his, his movie is <laughs> inferior. But then again, Orson Welles's Macbeth is a very weird movie that is not anywhere near the top of the Wells canon. So I don't know. I think what surprised me and what delighted me the most about researching this is how long there have been movie Macbeth and just that D.W. Griffith made one which hasn't survived and just that essentially Macbeth has been the Shakespeare play that great filmmakers have wanted to undertake since film began, much more so than Hamlet or Othello, I think. I mean, just in terms of the ambition with which it's been filmed. And I think there are things this is what I was trying to explore. I think there are things in the play that really do make it more cinematic than something like Hamlet or King Lear or Othello, if only just the brevity. It's the shortest of all the tragedies. And it it has a lot of action. It sets itself up very well to be a rollicking action film, which is exactly how Kurtzell undertakes it.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, the film is Macbeth. It stars Michael Fassbender. It's directed by Justin Kurtzell. Very curious to hear what our listeners think of it. You should go see it. I mean, I hope no one gets the impression that it's a thumbs down, at least to for me, me.
0: Cotillard and Fassbender as late Lord and Lady Macbeth. How can you not see that if you like mm-hmm. either of them or Shakespeare? You got to check it out.
1: Yeah, check it out, and then tell us what you thought of it. We'd we'd love to know. Facebook dot com slash Culture Fest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? <sighs>
2: Today's Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. These gourmet strawberries are fresh and dipped in chocolate, dark white and milk, whatever you prefer. Then they're sprinkled with decadent toppings like chocolate chips and chopped nuts. No word yet on whether there's a special Dana Stevens nutmeg edition. Uh, And they make a fantastic holiday gift. We got a bunch of these at the Slate offices a week or so ago to sample. I think maybe one or two boxes were intended for you, Steve and Dana. But I just commandeered them and gave them to the Slate (laughs)
1: staff. Sorry. It's it's good to be the boss.
2: (laughs) And uh, they were met with much rejoicing and praised for their juiciness, their chocolatiness, and their general deliciosity. Wait, Uh, me and Dana or the the candies? You guys are delicious as well, but I'm not sure I would put you next to Sherry's Berries in a Mm head-to-head taste test. All right. Sherry's Berries has a special offer for Slate Culture Gap Fest listeners. You can get sweet, freshly dipped strawberries starting at just nineteen ninety nine. That's 40% off the usual price. You can also double the amount of berries for just $10 more. To get this amazing offer starting at only nineteen ninety nine, dollars 99 go to berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. And then click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in culture. Order them today. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. A very Murray Christmas is both a relic from another era, the broadcast TV Christmas variety show, and a nod to the future when streaming TV just is TV. This production mixes song and comedy, nostalgia with meta, showbiz melancholy, and showbiz in-jokes, and of course, Bill Murray with an odds-and-ends roster of guests, including Miley Cyrus, George Clooney, and the hipster indie rock band Phoenix. Let's listen to a clip.
3: The heat's off in here, fellas. This'll help keep you warm.
1: Well, you, uh, this, is the nicest thing that's happened to me all day. To you.
3: It's Christmas Eve. It's my favorite night of the year. The power's out. The storm is raging outside. We're in here all cozy. For now. For now. Have another sip. Warm up, hon. Because, baby, it's cold outside.
1: Can't you stick around?
3: I really can't stay.
1: Baby, it's cold outside.
3: I've got to go away.
1: I'm not kidding. It's really cold out.
3: This evening has been so very nice.
1: I've been
3: hoping that you drop in.
1: Well, Julia, I presume that you love Bill Murray. The show certainly presumes that we all love Bill Murray. I love Bill Murray. But there's a lot of singing in this, especially from Bill Murray. What did you make of it?
2: <laughs> I like that review. A lot of singing in this year's Christmas special. I found myself charmed by this uh, totally unnecessary piece of cultural flotsam that nobody ever needed to have made. It It is a very melancholic—I mean, the director is Sofia Coppola— And it really is a bit as though Bill Murray's Lost in Translation character, not exactly, but some psychic cousin of him, is hosting a Christmas special. The plot, such as it is, it's very thin, is that Bill Murray is on the hook to host a live Christmas special from the Carlisle Hotel televised, but there has been a world historic blizzard and nobody's shown up. So he's going to have to post it live with no audience. And then the power goes out in the middle and the whole thing is adjourned. And then just like a bunch of semi-famous people hang out at Bemelman's and sing intermittently for the next 30 minutes. And then there's a Technicolor thing at the end where Miley Cyrus shows up and does a dream sequence. In a dream sequence, does a really nice version of uh, Silent Night. And there's George Clooney. And it's just mood, it's just a mood poem. And as a mood poem, I kind of loved it. It's It has a little bit of alienation from Christmas baked into it in a way that is n- still fundamentally sincere. And I that is what struck me as most unusual and most valuable about it. Like, I think there's kind of Christmas schlock, which you can have your own distanced relationship with, like you watch something cheesy and you yourself are a little bit more hardened and cynical and and the friction is between you on the couch and the screen. Or there's like Christmas spoofs where the cynicism is really baked in. But I feel like this special is in that mood between you on the couch and the thing on the screen. It's it's in the sort of thing of like, I wish there was something I genuinely felt warm and nostalgic about, but actually I'm a slightly depressive alcoholic cynic (laughs) who doesn't really feel like this time of year is totally for me. And yet... It's really nice to drink brandy inside when it's snowing and remember that sometimes people love each other.
0: And Bill Murray, of course, inhabits precisely that zone you were talking about, right, in between spoof and sincerity. I feel like the
2: whole latter phase of his career has been about exploring that that zone. Right. It's not a mood that's unfamiliar or surprising from Bill Murray, but it maps onto the holiday special in a really nice way. I watched this on the first night of Hanukkah, you know, after we'd had some folks over and it was kind of the the quiet after party. And I, you know, I was sort of cozily feeling like the holiday season had just kicked off and... Uh, It was pleasant. And yet I would not tell anybody they really have to see it. I mean, the the word
0: that kept coming to my mind as I was making my way through this rather long, meandering 56 minutes of of special was this is a roomy show. (laughs) You know, it has room for all kinds of things. And some of those things are worth spending time with and some aren't. I, I sort of thought that the long... Production number with Miley at the end was dispensable, and found myself wandering in and out of attention. But when this this show tried to be comic and have a comical performance of a Christmas song, I was laughing out loud early on. When Chris Rock is <laughs> is uneagerly conscripted into singing backups on "What's the Terrible Song?" Do they're you singing? hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? One of the worst mm-hmm. Christmas Christmas carols of all time, and just Chris Rock's way of telegraphing. I was roped into this while singing very poorly. I, mm-hmm. I loved. Also, I have to admit it, George Clooney at the end popping up from behind a Christmas tree to say Santa needs some lovin' or whatever it was. It's ridiculous. So when there was a spoof song, I was I was for it. But there was also just a lot of straight belting.
1: Yeah. It's funny that you call it roomy. I found it claustrophobic. I mean, the, the pretense is, as you say, that this live broadcast has gone horribly wrong and it has been essentially canceled by a blackout. So we follow as they're trapped inside Bemelman's right um, at the Carlisle. And uh, mostly with the exception of the Clooney number and the Cyrus number, it takes place in this one room. It presumes a lot upon the likability of people whose star image is not really built upon their likability. In my estimation, it's a little deadpan hipster and sentimental at the same time. I found it a lot of very odd ingredients You know, it ends up essentially being a celebrity karaoke marathon. I couldn't find a way to connect to this, even though it didn't bug me watching it. But I just didn't. I have to say it's on me, I'm sure. I just didn't understand what I was watching.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is trying to be in this funny space that feels like unnecessary by definition. So it's sort of novel and has occasional charms as a result of the unorthodoxness of its approach. But also, maybe there's a reason nobody made specials like this for many years. And the and the kind of two-bitness of all the players is interesting. I mean, there's Murray doing wonderful Murray. And I haven't heard Murray sing that much. And I really liked him singing. I actually think the open, there's an opening number where he sings about the Christmas blues with Paul Schaefer in his suite as he is about to kick off the Ill-Starred show, which I've found like very genuinely moving and kind of beautifully raspy um my father was at our house and it like the singing and the piano summoned him from the other room because he wanted to come see what was being played because he thought it was beautiful so it's not murray singing that's the problem and uh, uh, jenny lewis of rilo kiley you know is mildly charming i guess i just think the whole thing is mildly charming there's mm-hmm. like a, a kind of stunted, stilted romance plot between Rashida Jones and Jason Schwartzman that's very thinly sketched so the eventual rapprochement is very underwhelming.
0: Um, yeah, that's what I mean about Rumi. I mean, that could, that Schwartzman, Rashida Jones thing could have gone by the wayside, as could have the little sketch with uh, with Amy Poehler and the other woman at the beginning who play his producers. It feels like all those people just dropped in because, you know, they got a, a card from Sofia Coppola, no doubt very tasteful card, inviting <laughs> them to be part of this special.
1: Right, I think that that's where my sense of it is claustrophobic comes from. You've put your finger on it. It's clubby, yeah. What's well, clubby, right? She she's spent her life, Through no fault of her own, she spent her life in a hermetic showbiz universe. She tends to, when she does her best work, draw out parables of people who are trying to find something real within a bubble, most famously Lost in Translation with Murray. And um, I kind of liked being in the intimate showbiz bubble with her again, where kind of everyone is sort of famous and everyone's sort of your friend. And I kind of resented it a little bit and wanted to exit Screaming.
2: Right. I mean, I guess if her thing is just glorious ennui, just beautiful, beautiful contemplations of ennui, like the holiday season is not a bad time to take that tack, right? Like, it's okay. Like, if she, if you were going to point her at any month or holiday of the year, I'd rather have a holiday special than an Arbor Day extravaganza. Although actually, that's kind of fun to think about, too.
0: <laughs> I, would have, I would have been a lot happier with this at half an hour when I think about it. I think the few performances that were valuable could have could have come out in half an hour. Some of those little extraneous subplots could have disappeared. There didn't really need to be celebrities playing characters as there sometimes were. Amy Poehler played a character, Michael Sarah played a character, Schwartzman and Rashida Jones played characters. They should have just cut all that stuff out and had had it be a straight-up celebrity karaoke It's along. true.
2: The other strong celebrity performance we haven't acknowledged, we've acknowledged the goofball, Clooney, and rock cameos, but also Maya Rudolph shows up, maybe playing a character, maybe playing herself, I can't remember, but she just... She's like let me belt it let me be a belter. And she she has some fun with she a couple song. She sings songs. A real
0: like an R&B version of a, of an old girl group song, right? I think it's like a Phil Spector song. Yeah. And that's a moment when you realize that Minnie Ripperton being her mother is not just a trivia point on her resume. It's like you hear it you hear it in her voice and she's a great singer. But but I think a lot of those little sketches and sort of drama in between could have gone by the wayside.
1: All right, well it's a uh, very Murray christmas. It's streaming on Netflix. Uh You could check it out or not check it out, which is the spirit in which it was made. So um, go check it out or not. It's uh,
0: (laughs) Wander vaguely in and out, clutching gingerbread.
1: It's no skin off of this apple anyway. But if you do check it out, let us know what you thought of it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
2: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored today by Club W. 9,000 years, that's how long humans have been making wine, and that's also how long they have been confused about which wine to drink. I feel like at the age of 37, I have just barely figured out how to buy wine, and that's having been raised by a wine nerd and having edited Slate's wine coverage for several years. And still, when I go into the wine store, I think, Ooh. Club W is designed to help resolve such problems for wine shoppers. Go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions, and their algorithm creates a palette profile just for you. Then they send wine directly to your door, the best place to find wine. I think perfectly customized to match your taste with club W you get premium wine customized to your taste at a third of what you'd pay at the store. They even have a no risk, 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you right now. Club W is offering culture gab fest listeners 50% off your first order. When you go to clubwcom culture. So stop wasting time and money messing around at retail stores and start drinking wine. You know, you're going to love just go to clubwcom culture to get 50% off your first order. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: All right, moving on. Being sick means constructing an alternate reality, strapping it in place with sturdy mantras, surrendering to the beguiling logic of an old fairy tale. So writes Slate's word correspondent, Katie Waldman, in her astonishing new essay for Slate, There Once Was a Girl. She goes on to say... There once was a girl who ate very little. There once lived a witch in a deep, dark wood. Anorexics are convinced that they are hideous, bad, and unlovable. At the same time, they are constantly soliloquizing about their sacrifice, their nobility, their ethereal powers. Katie, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Why don't we begin in a slightly unexpected place with your uh, relationship with your sister, which was linked to your condition for a long time, and then get into what um, the bulk of the essay is about?
3: Sure. I mean, my sister is a wonderful person. I just, um, I describe her, or I name her E, and I guess I'll just call her E for the segment. But she is... You know, she's been kind of my idol for a lot of my life. She is incredibly smart, accomplished, and I have always sort of looked up to her. And she came down, I guess she contracted an eating disorder when she was 14, and I sort of followed her. (laughs) And the piece is basically my effort to understand what drove me to do that and how I could stop telling myself these destructive narratives about my sister and about myself.
1: Mm. And your sister, to you, she's a fraternal twin. She was a highly idealized figure. So there's the link in your own head between what she does and a form of sibling heroism. You also explore a thematic link, which I had never to be honest, really thought through, but your essay presents it so beautifully and so profoundly, which is the relationship between pathological thinness and, as you say, poetic sensitivity. There's something about the abnegation saints and monks and uh, mystics bring to food that's persistent in the culture.
3: I agree. I think there's something, and it goes back to mind-body dualism, like the, the notion that there's the flesh and it's coarse and desirous, and then there's the spirit, which is noble and beautiful and needs nothing. And if you can sort of affiliate yourself with the spirit side, then you are an artist, you live in a world of ideas, and you're also not greedy, you're not taking for yourself. And I think it's especially important for women to feel like they're not greedy so um, that was another strand in my thinking about all of these themes. Katie, you also trace that, that strand of thinking through to
0: some modern literary forms that that really surprised me. I think as, since I studied medieval literature, I was sort of familiar with the anorexic saint model. But the idea that Francesca Leah Block, the, the author of the young adult Weetzie Bat novels and, and other mm-hmm. hugely popular books for girls, was sort of also, an, an, a, how would you describe it, a starvation idolizer, you know, and, that, and that she was not only buying into, but to some extent peddling these myths of the anorexic as a more pure and kind of noble and clean being. That really shocked me because I love those
3: Weetzie back Bath books as you write about doing. Right. I love them, too. I mean, I was glued to those books when I was like 10, 11, 12. Um, And then actually some of her later short stories, she retold a bunch of fairy tales. And I loved that book. And she wrote an essay that was included in an anthology of writing about eating disorders. And I read the essay and noticed that a lot of her descriptions were very beautiful and very glamorizing and also very irresponsible. And it made me go back and reread some of the Weetsy Bat books that I had loved. And I saw the same thing. And it was really like one of those like your idols are shattered on the floor uh, moments for me. And I sent a lot of angry emails to um people who I had discussed the books with when I was younger and said, oh, I can't believe she did this. I feel so betrayed.
2: Um one of the things that I think is remarkable about your essay, Katie, is you know, you're you're both untangling this set of narrative threads around anorexia that have beguiled and intrigued at least a certain set of people who suffer from the disease but you're also writing a narrative. You're, you're sort of using a story to articulate a critique of the way that story works in regard to this disease. And I'm curious how you thought about that as you were writing about, you know, kind of your words choices and your potential audience. And I'm also curious to hear you talk a little bit about the medical strain of thinking, which you pull very strongly into the essay at the end, and which I think is something that you argue persuasively has too often gets left out of thinking about anorexia.
3: Yeah, I mean those are those are really interesting points. It was I was a little bit nervous about replicating the kind of mythologizing and lyricization of these figures um and of the disease because, you know, it's hard to describe those um sort of lodestars of the tradition without using the same kind of seductive language to show why they're appealing. And I didn't want to glamorized so I guess what I tried to do was register like how attracted I had been to the tradition and then undercut it and it was helpful then to have the science waiting in the wings to say this is actually not about some amazing discipline or like strength of character at all it's about biology it's about chemicals in your brain and being born with the different levels of serotonin and all kinds of things that the starving brain does that actually perpetuates the disorder so yeah it it was sort of an interesting uh juggling act and a challenge there
0: Katie, you say in an interview on Slate Plus with with Gabriel Roth that, um, that you thought there was a 3% chance your sister would never speak to you again after reading this, and there was a 7% chance your mother would never speak to you. So I'm curious to know, have they read it, and what was their response, and your father's as well?
3: Yeah, um, the odds were in my favor, luckily, thankfully. Um, so everyone is speaking to me. Um, I think my parents are wonderful. They... I think they just made a conscious decision to be proud of the piece as opposed to angst over it. Um and they Did they have just, some warning you were writing it? Yeah, like I I had been discussing the fact that I wanted to do this with them for a while and they were sort of um cautiously supportive and then as details made their ways into made their way into the draft uh I would sometimes alert them and they'd say, oh, that's okay. Oh, I feel queasy about that. But I remember one time I was talking to my dad and he just said, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime, which felt to me like he was absolving me for saying anything because it it truly happened. Mm -hmm. And my sister, you know, she has been great too. I don't think she's publicizing the piece herself because that would betray her identity, but she sent me some lovely texts. And she's a great reader of all literature and all writing. And so her opinion
2: means a lot to me. I'm really glad to hear that was the result, Katie. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Thanks.
0: Katie, another observation you make, and once you read it and you start looking at your examples, it seems so crystal clear, but I had never thought of it, is that anorexia memoirs, which are proliferating everywhere, also have a double function as anorexia manuals. In other words, hearing the details about how someone else's sickness unfolded can almost provide inspiration for the anorexic reader to go off on her own.
3: Yeah, um, that is very true. And um, many people have observed that anorexia is a very competitive illness, that details about one person's practice of the disorder, if you could say it that way, um, can be really triggering to someone else. Kelsey Osgood has written about this at length uh, in her book. And I think that dynamic was especially powerful for me because I was already comparing myself with my sister and she with me. And so our disorders kind of built on each other. It was like a cyclone of death. So, um, but definitely reading, reading about people's exercise regimes um it, It's as if people are giving details in their memoirs as if to say like, oh, don't do this. It's so dangerous and terrible. But there's a way in which it's it's actually very heroicized almost Um, like the power of the abnegation is supposed to be really impressive. And I think a lot of eating disorder readers react to that
0: yeah it seemed like if there was one thing you were trying to do with this essay that such books don't do. it was to to really thoroughly deglamorize and um and and point out the ways in which even other deglamorizations can continue to glamorize a
2: disorder like anorexia. yeah, I think your descriptions of sort of how it how it really felt and how cloudy your brain became and how how much your reality within the disease contrasted with all of these just how toxic these little fairies can be. I mean, that's the other thing is that it's all of these, everything that is sinister, all of the literary tropes that you describe as sinister are things that if you're not thinking about them critically or thinking about them from this perspective, seem, eh, maybe a little like gender passive or something, but basically pretty innocuous and and girlish. and, And seeing them through your eyes felt like the moment at the eye doctor's when the right lens snaps down in front of your vision and everything comes into focus.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's both um, these unthreatening feminine figures, but also these very artistically brilliant and sensitive figures. Um, And I think I had a moment where I wanted to reclaim writing kind of for the good guys. Like, I didn't (laughs) like how writers were supposed to be these emaciated... People who wanted for nothing or who, who wanted nothing, I thought that desire was actually a huge part of writing and people should embrace that. And, you know, you can desire food and that's OK. Right.
0: And, and imperfection, too, right? I mean, it seems yeah. like the, the, the mindset of the, of the anorexic, the true anorexic is, is antithetical to the mindset of the true writer because you're, you're, shutting, you're shutting things out rather than letting things in. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not digging deep enough.
1: All right. Well, Katie Waldman's essay on Slate is called There Once Was a Girl. It is uh, a beautiful piece of writing and it comes as highly recommended as uh, this program can recommend it. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it.
2: Thank you, guys. This was fun.
1: All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got?
2: This week's Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's has special holiday shaving sets that could make a fantastic gift for the dad, brother, secret Santa, or... Apple-cheeked podcast host in your life. These limited edition Harry's gift sets not only deliver the amazing quality and value that Harry's has become known for by many, including Steve, but they also look fantastic. It comes with a copper-plated razor handle, a couple of five-blade cartridges, shaving cream that smells and feels great, and a cool travel kit to hold everything when you're heading out of town for holiday gatherings. All of this comes in a box that looks great, so you won't even have to wrap it if you don't want to. A gift that shows up in your mail... Ready to go and deliver is a great gift at this time of year, I say. Harry's holiday shaving sets start at $15 and as a special offer for Slate Culture Gab Fest listeners. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and enter the promo code CULTURE. Free shipping for the holidays ends on December 10th, and I believe this podcast comes out on the 9th, so act right now. Go to your computer or on your mobile device to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the code CULTURE. Harry's is the perfect gift for people in your life with hair they'd like to remove or that you'd like for them to remove, and it makes every morning feel like a holiday.
1: All right. uh, Now is the time in the podcast where we endorse. But first, I think we have some business, don't we, Julia?
2: Yeah. I got called out by our listeners last week for saying that I really enjoyed Nuzzle in my endorsement, but it was a little bit buggy, and I was hoping that the beta would move to alpha sometime soon. A number of tech savvier people than I emailed and tweeted at me to let me know that the alpha is what comes before the beta. This has helped me understand so much about betas. Betas are not the penultimate editions of the product. They're just the second fucking version. We could get all the way to Z. There could be 24 iterations superior to the beta. My whole world is revolutionized by this. So I, I apologize for having fucked up exactly what alpha means in the tech world. I look forward to whatever the Greek letter C is of Nuzzle. What is the Greek letter C? Alpha, beta, there's no C. Okay, well, there's, there's a surely there's a letter that comes next. A uh, gamma? All right. <laughs> I can't wait for the gamma version of Nuzzle. All right, now we can endorse.
1: Dana, what do you have?
0: Well, because Julia says she's never seen another production of Macbeth, it turns out that my endorsement is cut out for her. Because my endorsement is going to be double, both of them have to do with a great filmed theatrical version of Macbeth starring Ian McKellen and Judi Dench. It's from back in the late 70s. And I did not include it in my roundup of filmed Macbeths because on the grounds that it is a filmed theatrical production, it's basically, you know, the director of the play finding ways to frame his play so that it's vaguely cinematic. But what it really is, is a record of this essentially perfect production of Macbeth from the late 70s. Just both McKellen and Dench are, fantastic. And the full text is there. And it's just a great way to see Macbeth if you want to see it not chopped up by Justin Kurtzel and set against a grandiose background. Um, So it's called, if you look for it on YouTube, the whole thing's there. It's called a production of Macbeth, I believe, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is very sort of arty and black box in late 70s. So that's half my endorsement is watch that version of Macbeth and then or beforehand could work too. There's this wonderful adjunct I happen to come across in, in YouTube research, which is Ian McKellen, in the 70s wearing a shirt unbuttoned nearly to the navel and looking incredibly hot giving a master class to a bunch of acting students about the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech ah. in Macbeth and how to deliver it and what it means and the word origins and just like, his degree of knowledge and enthusiasm and passion for that speech is amazing. Mm, I tweeted brilliant. this the other night when I was doing some Macbeth research and people were just swooning everywhere for it just for seeing young, lithe Ian talking about you know the s- syllables the last syllables of recorded time so that you can look for on YouTube I don't know how you would look for it Ian McKellen we'll put a link to it on our Ian
1: show page Ian McKellen Naval. <laughs> 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 alright um, uh, Julia what do you have?
2: I want to endorse a wonderful movie that I saw last week called 45 Years. The movie was written and directed by Andrew Hay, who was the writer-director of Weekend, a film we all loved, and also the creator, one of the creators of Looking, uh, the show that I loved and that my husband worked on. Um, And he's just come out. I think it's slowly releasing here or about to release here, this movie, 45 Years. It opens
0: Christmas week, I believe.
2: Okay. Film starring Charlotte Rampling and... Tom Courtenay as a married couple on the eve of their 45th anniversary party who um, suddenly a uh, detail from their past surfaces and all of the rifts and chasms and decisions and compromises of their marriage come into the light over the course of one very mundane but totally emotionally devastating week. And it is such a beautiful movie. So beautiful. So beautifully written. So subtle so amazingly acted by both of them, and particularly by Charlotte Rampling. I'm just in love with it. So as soon as it opens, go see it. I'm sure we may, I hope we may have occasion to talk about it in our Oscar warm-up sessions in January and February. But um, yeah, Dana, have you seen it?
0: Yes, totally agree. It's probably going on my top 10 list. I'm writing about it. I interviewed Charlotte Rampling for it last week, and 45 years is a a must. Is uh, to
2: me, indisputably, one of the best movies on the, of the year.
1: Um, I mean, we ha- we have to talk about it on the show now. I mean,
2: all right. Well, I, I will spare further thoughts, but no. Rest safe in your heart that we will talk about it. So go see it when it comes to an art house theater near you. I'm not sure how big. A, can't tell how big a promotional push it's going to get yet. It seems fairly unheralded so far. Um, but it's, I'd
0: be very surprised if she doesn't get an Oscar nomination.
2: Uh, it's an amazing performance and an amazing movie. So check it out.
1: Mm. Uh, it's been a great year for movies, hasn't it?
2: There's jolly old Santa Steve loving everything <laughs> these days. <laughs> super
1: weird all right well um so uh, my endorsement this week is
2: all space <laughs> cinnamon sticks <laughs> and <Anna> stars <laughs>
1: oh all right, so I couldn't quite bring myself to endorse uh, bill Murray's uh, Christmas special, but I do love bill Murray and he, I, he's in his he's You know, kind of gone through this late phase transition from, you know, human into hipster deity, practically. Um, But I wanted to cast people's mind back to when Bill Murray first started on Saturday Night Live. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, Chevy Chase was the first breakout star from Saturday Night Live. It's kind of hard to get one's head around now thinking about the fates of the various people who've broken out from the show. But, um, you know, Chevy Chase was on the show for a year, maybe two, and was huge. He was absolutely the face of the franchise in part because he said every night live from New York at Saturday night he kicked off the show. His pratfalls were thought of as absolutely wonderful. He was a a very odd comedic presence and he went immediately on to movies where he sort of disappeared and his replacement was Bill Murray who nobody liked at first. Very few people liked. First of all, just Wait, let me just in an, jump
3: in.
0: Chevy Chase was a pretty big movie star for a moment there after he got out of SNL. But
1: go on. I understand. I mean, foul play and the vacation movies, on and on and on. But one thought that Chevy Chase was about to become a major and enduring American movie star, and he, I, I would argue he didn't. But And Bill Murray did, which is the point of this whole spiel, is that you know Murray had this impossible situation, these shoes to fill, the loafers to fill. I mean, the whole thing about Chevy Chase was that he was this completely unpolished, technique-free preppy, which was probably extremely hard to pull off on live TV. And in came Murray, this sebaceous, lumbering Chicagoan with a very broad style. And one of his early characters was the lounge singer, Nick Winters. And the whole joke of it was just, it was so fucking annoying to watch Bill Murray sing. That was the joke. And he, and Nick Winters didn't understand that he was a terrible singer and this kind of wore you down and wore you down until you found it incredibly endearing and then the bit kind of worked and one of the really famous ones was him singing Star Wars this ridiculous you know uh, version of the Star Wars theme song with lyrics anyway so I want people to go and rediscover the super early Bill Murray who's still finding his way on Saturday Night Live doing this lounge singer nick winters and then one more semi early mid period bill murray movie that no one talks about anymore written by one of my favorite screenwriters richard price the genius behind a lot of the wire called mad dog and glory it stars uma thurmond and robert de niro and bill murray it's mostly forgotten it's kind of a mobster chamber piece if such a thing is possible really interesting movie would love to hear from you if you saw it and liked it dana thank you very much
0: thank you steve
1: julia thanks a lot Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate CultFest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what do I you see, see what me? I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what do I do see see? what I see? a star a star dancing in the night
2: with a tail as big as a kite with a tail as big as a kite I'm Gretchen Rubin. And I'm Elizabeth Kraft, her sister
1: and happiness guinea pig.
2: Every week on our podcast, we talk about a try-this-at-home tip for making your life happier. Which try-this-at-home tip do you think listeners have most responded to? Without question, the one-minute rule. Oh, the rule that anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. Yes, put a dish in a dishwasher, hang up a coat, whatever. I have to say this has improved my marriage because my husband is neat and I'm not. And this is a good example of that happiness can feel very transcendent and abstract, but sometimes it's the little practical things that give us the biggest happiness boost. Search for Happier wherever you find your podcast.